Good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome again to our 11 o'clock worship service. We're glad that you're here. If this is the first time you're with us, again, we extend to you our warmest welcome. This morning, we continue our series entitled, David, a man after God's own heart. We wonder as we look into the life of David, how can such a broken, flawed man be given such a high honor by the Lord himself? As we saw two weeks ago, it was because he had cultivated a shepherd's heart, a heart ready to serve God, a heart for God. And then as we began to look at the characteristics of what constitutes a heart for God, last week in the story of David and Goliath, we saw that the first quality of a heart for God is a heart of faith. This week, as we take a look at the second quality of a heart for God, we look at a heart of wisdom, a heart of wisdom. But let me begin this morning by telling you a story. There was a very smart city boy named Kenny, and Kenny moved to the country where he bought a donkey from an old farmer for $100. The farmer agreed to deliver the donkey the next day, And sure enough, the next day, the farmer drove up and said to Kenny, I'm sorry, son, but I have some bad news. The donkey has died. Well, Kenny replied, well, then just give me back my money. To which the farmer said to him, I'm sorry, Kenny, can't do that. I went and spent it already. Well, then Kenny said, okay, then at least give me the dead donkey. The farmer said, you do realize he's dead. Yes, I know. What are you going to do with him? Kenny thought for a moment. He said, I'm going to raffle him off. The farmer said, you can't raffle off a dead donkey. Kenny said, sure I can. Watch me. I just won't tell anybody he is dead. A month later, the farmer met up with Kenny and asked him, Well, Kenny, what happened with that dead donkey? Kenny smiled and said, I raffled him off. In fact, I sold 500 tickets to the local farmers at $2 a piece and made a profit of $898. The farmer said to him, Kenny, didn't anyone complain? Kenny thought, well, just one, just one guy. Who? The guy who won the dead donkey. What did you do? I gave him back his $2. That's how I made a profit of $898. When we think of this kid, we think of him as being very smart, perhaps a bit cunning. But as I think about it, smartness and being cunning doesn't have anything to do with biblical wisdom. Wisdom isn't walking around spouting off facts that you have in your head. And biblical wisdom isn't walking around quoting Bible verses all day so people think you're super spiritual or holy. Well, what then is it? Well, let's take a look at the Bible. If you have the Bi- your Bibles, please turn with me again to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We've been in the book of 1 Samuel, if you're new to the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then we get to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 18, as we take a look at verses 1 to 16. 
In the life of David, we see a man who lived wisely. And through what he experiences in life, we get to peer into what a heart of wisdom looks like. And so we want to see what a heart of wisdom indeed looks like. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Let me read verse 1 to 4. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. After the incident with David and Goliath, which we talked about last week, David is no longer unknown to King Saul. King Saul knows this brave young man who stood against the giant Goliath. And he honors him. And he brings him into the royal household. And there, immediately, David develops a great friendship and a great kinship with Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, we'll talk more about that friendship in subsequent weeks. But only to note that so close and deep was their friendship that they made a covenant of friendship. Evidently, Jonathan realized David's God-given talent. And we find out in Scripture that Jonathan also knew that it was God's will for David to be the next king of Israel and not himself. And in a great act of self-humility, Jonathan gives his own princely royal robes and armaments to David to serve both as a sign of friendship and a sign of submission. As I read these introductory verses of verse chapter 18, I sense the hand of God very much at work. And if you're reading the story of David, like he has done with so many other men of faith and women of faith, he was positioning David so that he could use him at the time he so desires. The hand of God is very much in the life of David. And it's simply amazing how God uses David to cultivate his life for such a time when he is ready to use him. You know, some of you asked me when we spoke about the anointing of David two weeks ago, why didn't God simply make David king over all Israel immediately after his anointing? Why did he have to wait 15 years before he is coronated? With Saul so bad, why didn't they replace him with a child king in the person of David? You see, God has his own perfect timing. God needed David to continue to be a shepherd. Because as a shepherd, David continued to develop the principles that he would then be able to use as he led the people of Israel. As a shepherd, David would develop courage as he would fight off the wild beasts who would come to attack his sheep. The very courage he would need to serve as the future commander of the armies of Israel. As a shepherd of Israel, he would learn patience. He would learn what it means to be silent, to be able to listen to the prompting and the leading of the Lord. And he would learn this spiritual discipline as a shepherd so that when he became king, 
and the busyness of all the social events he had to attend to would press on upon his schedule, he as king would realize and remember the importance of carving out time to quietly listen to the leading and the prompting of the Lord. God needed David to continue to be a part-time musician and a harp player in the courts of Saul. By being a musician, David learned to be sensitive to his artistic side. He would have practice in writing poetry and, and songs. And that at such time, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would be able to write some of the moving psalms we so love in the book of Psalms. Where he's able to express with the most vivid of words, the most innermost emotion of the human heart. He's able to explain in analogies that he sees in nature how almighty God is. And now being brought into the courts of King Saul, he would learn another skill. He would learn to become a statesman and a diplomat, which he would very much need when he becomes king. You see, when David is coronated 15 years later after his anointing, David is fully equipped and ready to be king over all of Israel. Whether a soldier, a warrior, a musician, a diplomat, most importantly, David was cultivating a heart of wisdom. And it would not be easy, especially with the growing jealousy of King Saul towards him. Look at verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and note these words, and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Look at the description of David at the beginning of verse 5. David behaved wisely. Now, in some English translations of the Bible... This phrase is translated, and David succeeded in all that he did. David prospered. But you see, the very root word, the Hebrew word, sakal, literally means he was wise. He lived wisely. Indeed, David was successful and David was prosperous because he was wise in how he lived his life. We find out he is made commander of Saul's army. And the entire royal household and military men accepted him, respected him. David was able to win over the hearts of the people he was leading and commanding. He won their love. He won their honor. He won their respect. And herein lies an important lesson, my friends. Learn this now. doesn't matter if you're leading one or you're leading a corporation of a thousand. Remember, respect must be earned. It can never be demanded. There are so many people, because they think they hold a title, demand respect. You must respect me. But respect can never be demanded. They may pay lip service to respecting you, but they don't deep down in their hearts. Respect must be earned, cannot be demanded. 
and David earned the respect of his military men and the people of the royal court. How did David earn the respect? Simply in verse 5, he lived wisely. If I were to ask you, how do you become wise? How do you live wisely? It's such a vague term. Some of you who have graduated from Grace or are attending Grace Christian High School would tell me Psalm 111, verse 10. You know, that's the verse that is plastered in the school lobby that you enter in and see every day. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's true. A healthy respect a healthy honor of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that's true. But that's simply the starting point. How then do you live wisely for the rest of your life? How then do you live your life with great wisdom? Put your fingers in First Samuel chapter 18. We're going to come back to that. And would you turn over with me to the book of Psalms? Psalm chapter 119, as we take a look at verses 1 to 8. Psalm 119 verses 1 to 8. This is in the genre of psalms called the wisdom psalm. And although it doesn't have any written attribution, there are no authorships attributed in this psalm, a majority of Jewish and Christian scholars maintain that Psalm 119 was composed by King David based on some stylistic similarities unique only to psalms written by King David. And I also personally believe that this psalm is written by King David. Regardless of who wrote it, it has such great insight into how to live wisely. But if it is written by King David, which I believe it is, then what he writes in Psalm 119, especially in verses 1 to 8, tells us how he was able to live wisely in the courts of King Saul and how he interacted with the people. Look with me as I read verse 1 to 8. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do not, they also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed. When I look into all your commandments, I will praise you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. I wish we had time to fully exposit this wonderful psalm. But basically, we're told in this wisdom psalm how to live wisely. You live wisely when you keep the commandments of God. When you walk in his ways. Living wisely is living out the full truths of what the Scriptures have to say. Living wisely is in the everyday of your life, interacting with one another, living out the principles and the truths, all of them in the Scripture. Not haphazardly, not picking and choosing. And yet this is the tendency of many Christians to pick and choose how they obey the scriptures. I'm reminded of a story of a reunion 
of two high school buddies. They were seated at a table talking. Many at the reunion could tell that the first friend had found the secret to success. While the second friend was not doing so well in life and was simply what we call a wannabe. He wanted to impress everyone, but everyone could tell that he wasn't doing very well. And so the second friend, the wannabe friend, asked his wealthy friend about the secret of his financial success. The first friend said, well, I've asked God to help me make my financial decisions along the way and all through my life. The second friend said, how do you do that? The wealthy friend said, this is what I do. I pray, Lord, show me what to do. Then I would open up my Bible and point my finger on the page. And there God would have directed his path for me. The second friend said, how does that work? He said, well, let me tell you. The first time I did that, I prayed and asked God to show me what to do. I opened up my Bible And I pointed my finger to a page in the Bible and my finger landed on the word oil. So I invested everything I had in the oil market. And when oil hit $100 a barrel, I made it. Made a ton of money. A few years later, I needed to make some more money. And so I went to God again and I asked him, Lord, show me what to do. And I opened up my Bible and I pointed to some words and my finger landed on the words gold and silver. And so I bought into the precious metals market. When gold hit $500 a gram, I made a killing. Most recently, I pointed to the word gates. I wasn't sure how God was going to show me at first. But then I soon realized God was leading me to invest in the computer markets, in Microsoft, that Bill Gates had started. And then the economic technological boom, I made a lot of money in Microsoft. And with God's help, I'm nearly as rich as Bill Gates himself. So thoroughly impressed, uh, the second wannabe friend went back to his hotel room. He knew he needed some help. He was desperate. He had maxed out all of his credit cards to try to impress all of his high school friends. He was deeply in debt. And so he decided if it worked for his friend, maybe it would work for him also. In his desperation, he opened the night stand drawer and pulled out the ubiquitous Gideon's Bible. And in his despair and desperation, he said and he, on his bed and he prayed, Lord, I need your help. Please show me what to do. He opened the Bible and pointed to the words and his finger landed on the words and Judas went and hung himself. How ridiculous a method to find the will of God. And yet I would be so scared if I took a survey this morning asking how many of you have employed the very same method. Perhaps a great majority of you would have done so because I also did the very same thing. And that is a microcosm of how we treat the scriptures. It's a sort of hit and miss sort of methodology We pick what we like, we choose to skip over what we don't like, or willfully ignore and skip the passages that would speak into our hearts. Living rightly and living wisely means you consistently follow all the principles of what the living God has written in His living word. 
You need to read it to know it. You cannot pick and choose what you like. You cannot justify in your mind which principles you like and which principles you don't and what life situation has allowed you to perhaps think that you can circumvent God's rules. Living wisely in Psalm 119 tells us that we walk in His ways. Walking in His way is doing the right thing in the eyes of God. You know, it's interesting, the Bible in Living Wisely doesn't give us a laundry list of how we are to live our life. But He simply tells us, as you interact daily with one another, living wisely is doing what is right in the eyes of God, not according to your standards, according to what the standards of God has written in the Scriptures. Living out the truths of all the Scriptures every day in your life. You know, and that's what we see in the life of David. He does what is right in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of men. Remember, now he's in a place of power. He doesn't let power get to his head. He doesn't succumb to the intrigues of court life. He does right. He does right when no one is looking. He does right when others have wronged him. As we're going to see in verse 6 onward, Saul tries to kill him. Because of his jealousy. And yet David continues to do what is right. Please do not get the assumption that David didn't sin. Or that he made no mistakes. But what you see in the heart of David is a man. Who desired with his life. And to the best of his ability with the help of the Lord. To live out all the truths of the scriptures. And that's why the Bible tells us in verse 5. Of 1 Samuel chapter 18, he behaved wisely. Look at verse 6 to verse 9. Now what happened as they were returning home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can they have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. In verse 6 to 8, we see that David was so effective and brilliant as a military commander that his achievements were celebrated in song. Saul has killed thousands, but David, David has killed tens of thousands. And Saul felt threatened. Saul is a classic example of a man who is very insecure. If we were to, to do a character study of Saul, you would see how insecurities can destroy a man or a woman. So insecure in himself, even though he was the king of Israel at that time, he felt threatened by David. He was worried that David was becoming more popular than himself. In fact, in verse 10 to verse 11, we find out that Saul so 
angry with jealousy and with rage, tries to kill David. But David escapes through the provision of God. But here I want you to notice what's said in verse 9. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Saul would be putting David under a microscope, would have an eagle eye on him, so that the very first time that David slipped up, Saul would be there to accuse him of something. Perhaps Saul got a few of his royal spies to look into the daily life of David to see what dirt he could dig up about David. But you know, like Daniel of old, implied in the scriptures is that Saul could find nothing to pin on David. There was no dirt you could dig up on him because there just wasn't anything. David lived wisely. He did what was right. That's why nothing could be said of him. My friends understand that. When you do what is right, there is nothing to be afraid of. You may not be the richest person. You may not have the most friends. But you can sleep well at night. You can have a clear conscience knowing you have nothing to hide. That's why the Bible tells us when you live in truth, it sets you free. If you live in a lie... And your life is a life of a cat and mouse. Where you get caught and you say you're sorry. And you get caught and you say you're sorry. And you live lie after lie after lie. It's going to catch up to you. You will be found out whether in this lifetime or the life after this. For David, Saul had a microscope on his life. And couldn't find anything on him. Why? Verse 5. Because David behaved wisely. How about for your life? If someone hired a private investigator to investigate your life. If someone wanted to dig up dirt on your life. What skeletons are going to come out from your closet? What things will be on earth of which you will be so shamed about? which will shame the very name of Jesus Christ. To live wisely is to live rightly. To apply in your life all of the principles of scriptures, not picking and choosing what you like. Look at verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him a captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. Saul thought that David had too much influence in the royal courts and he decided to send him out into the field and he gave him his own large unit of soldiers to command in addition to being commander-in-chief of his army just to get him out of the palaces. And as I read these verses, I'm surprised that David stuck around after Saul tries to kill him. I wouldn't stick around if my boss was trying to kill me. But here you again see what we talked about last week. A heart of faith to trust God 
to protect him. David saw a God who was bigger than Saul. A God who had protected him, the Bible said, on two previous occasions when Saul tried to kill him. When we talk about a heart for God, when we talk about these 11 characteristics, these characteristics don't sit in silo. You cultivate a heart of faith and then you move on to a heart of wisdom and so on and so forth. They all overlap. A heart of wisdom is also a heart of faith. David, in great wisdom, followed the orders of Saul. And he sticks with him. Knowing that his God would protect him. And that he had faith that as God has promised him to be the next king of Israel, God would do as he has promised. You know, David could have plotted for the overthrow of Saul. He had the army. He had the field army at his hand. But yet he patiently, that's a tough one, patiently waited, trusting in God's perfect timing. And we're going to see that in subsequent weeks. How there would be many opportunities that David would be able to kill Saul, like in the caves of En Gedi. And yet, David saw Saul as the Lord's anointed, spared his life, because he had faith in God's timing. That is wise living. Doing right in the eyes of God, even if others have wronged you. Doing right. Doing right. And look how David is described again, verse 14 and verse 15. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before him. There are those words again. It wasn't a one-time description. David is described multiple times in this chapter that he was a man who behaved wisely, who lived wisely. Even in his new role, David continued to prosper. He continued to succeed because he lived wisely. He did what was right in the eyes of God. You know, as I think about David interacting with these people every day, I believe these people could very much see the authenticity of David. The Bible says he came in and out of, with them every day. He interacted with them every day. And if you interact with people every day, they will see you for who you truly are. They must have seen the authenticity of how he lived his life. He wasn't faking a God-centered life. He was living out naturally every day in his dealings with people the love of God. He did what was right in the eyes of God. He dealt with them fairly, as we're going to see in subsequent chapters. Never compromising his love for the people with his first love for God. And the people knew that. And the Bible tells us they loved him. They loved him. You know, sometimes in life, especially when we become adults, we make life a lot more complex than it really is. That which is black and white 
somehow becomes gray when we become adults. And so sometimes to get a black and white picture of the world, you have to ask children. I was reading a book recently entitled The World According to Kids. It's a book by Sally Collings. And in this book, she interviews children or kids for their words of wisdom, their real assessment on life as they saw it. Let me share with you some of what she gathered. Patrick, age 10, in great words of wisdom, said this, Never trust a dog to watch your food. Nancy, age 12, said, When your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her comb your hair. Michael, age 14, says, When your dad is mad and asks you, Do I look stupid? Don't answer him. Michelle, age 12, says, Never tell your mom her diet's not working. Another girl writes, If your brother hits you, don't hit him back. They always catch the second person. Naomi, age 15, says, If you want a kitten as a pet, start out by asking for a horse. Lauren, age 9, said, Whiteboard markers are not good to use as lipstick. Joel, age 10, says, Don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. Eileen, age 8, says, No matter how hard you try, you can't baptize cats. The world of children are either in black and white, there are no gray. And I'm sure living in the very same condition, we would find a way to mess it up. You see, living out the principles of the scripture, it's either you do it or you don't do it. You either live it out and live wisely or you don't do it. In the words of Yoda from Star Wars, do or do not, there is no try. You see, so many Christians have this notion that they're going to try to live a Christ-centered, God-honoring life. Often, that's just a cop-out for, well, I'll see what I can do. If it's convenient for me, if it's easy for me, if I don't need to change the way I live my life, okay, I'll follow those principles. But if it's going to somehow affect my life, it's going to be difficult. If it's going to require big change in my life, you know what? I'll just try, but it really means I'm not going to do it. Unless I'm caught. Unless I'm forced to do it. You either do it or you don't do it. It's a black and white sort of deal. I believe it was the same way for David. Whether he was in the courts of Saul or he was amongst the people. The Bible tells us over and over again in this chapter, David lived wisely. He did what was right in the eyes of God. You know, it's very funny. The Bible tells us in verse 15, Saul was afraid. Saul was afraid because David continued to garner the respect and love of the people. 
as he continued to live a God-honoring life. We often think that we have to live a life of sin, that we have to get to the level of the world to gain acceptance from them and love from them. And here we see that David's wise living garnered him the love of the people and the adoration of the people. You know, sometimes when we see someone who is more spiritual than us, we, we don't cheer them on. We look at those who are more spiritual and we say, well, they're just weird. They, they don't live in the real world where I have my everyday problems. They have time to read their Bible. They have time to pray. They live closer to their office. They're officers in their company. And it's so interesting that instead of seeing these more spiritual-minded people and saying, what a wonderful example by which I can then exemplify, uh, which then I can change my life to be more like them, we want to bring them down to our level. And we give excuses why we can't live like they do. We're jealous of them, jealous of their spirituality, Jealous of their walk with God. That was Saul's reaction. When he saw that David was above reproach, when he saw that David did what was right in the eyes of God, the Bible tells us he was afraid. He was afraid. Those who do not live wisely in the fear of God will be afraid. They will run scared that somehow someone's going to find them out. Someone's going to find out that they're a big fraud. That they're just going through the motions of Christianity. And then they will be unmasked for who they truly are. But those who walk in wisdom, those who walk in the knowledge of God, and what he has said in the scriptures, will find the love of many and the admiration of many, but more importantly, the admiration of one, our Heavenly Father. A heart of wisdom knows the principles that God has set out for them, and he applies it to one's daily walk with him. It is a heart that simply does what is right in the eyes of God. It is good that the Bible doesn't give us a laundry list of the things we are to do to live wisely. It just simply tells us, do what is right in the eyes of God. Now go live life. Go interact with people, whether you're in the courts or the royal courts or whether you're amongst the commoners. You do what is right in the eyes of God. A heart of wisdom sees the situation as it truly is and then applies God's principles in it. I believe David was loved by so many because he was living wisely and it came out in his authenticity. He was very real. He was normal. He wasn't quoting Bible verses all day. 
He wasn't reading the Bible all day. He was interacting with the people every day, blessing them, encouraging them, finding the joy of the Lord in, our, in, our, in interacting with his people. Living wisely doesn't mean David didn't have any issues or fault. But when he messed up, he was wise enough to ask for forgiveness when he had wronged others. He was wise enough to humble himself to learn. Do not show the ignorance of who you are by how you live your life. You know, sometimes we get so competitive in our life. We just want to impress one another. And so instead of living rightly, we live wrongly just so that we can garner the attention of many. I close with one of my favorite stories. It shows how driven by competition, we often come to the wrong conclusion. It's a story of British scientists who, having dug to a depth of 10 feet at a certain location, found traces of copper wire dating back 200 years and these British scientists came to the conclusion that their ancestors already had a telephone network more than 150 years ago. Proud British. Well, not to be outdone by the British, the Americans stepped in. In the weeks that followed, an American archaeologist dug to a depth of 20 feet. And shortly after, a story was published in the New York Times. American archaeologists finding traces of 250-year-old copper wire, concludes that their ancestor already had advanced high-tech communications. They had a network 100 years earlier than the British. Not wanting to lose out to the Americans and the British, the Australians put in their contribution. A week later... the state's Department of Mineral and Energy in Western Australia reported the following. After digging as deep as 30 feet in Western Australia's Filbara region, Jack Lucknow, a self-taught archaeologist, reported that he found absolutely nothing. Jack therefore concluded that 250 years ago, Australia, more advanced than the Americans and the British, had already gone wireless. Oh, what competition does to those who try to impress one another except trying to impress God. David had a lot of people to impress. A country boy brought into the courts of Saul, not even having the pedigree, as we talked about two weeks ago, of being thought of as rightfully king. He needed to impress Saul, his king. He needed to impress Jonathan, his good friend. He needed to impress the princes and the princesses who lived there. He needed to impress men of power like Joab and Abner. We'll talk more about them in subsequent weeks. He needed to impress the common people. He needed to impress the soldiers and the servants. 
and all of the 11 tribes who were not from the tribe of Judah so that he would gain credibility. He had a lot of people to impress. But he didn't see that he needed to impress them. He saw in his life the need to impress only one. To gain the approval and the acceptance and the pat on the back of one Lord. How do you live your life? Do you live your life to impress many? Because if you live a life such as that, you will not live wisely. You will live according to how others want you to live. But you, if you live your life to impress one, your heavenly Father, you will live wisely because you will do what is right in His eyes. I challenge you, my friends, this morning. Cultivate a heart of wisdom. Live wisely. Live rightly. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for how you make it so simple that we don't have to justify why we don't live in accordance to your will. Help us to be like David, who in the simplicity of his life lived forth a life that was holy and pleasing to you. It was said of him, he was a man who lived wisely. Help each of us never have to compromise or justify or hide aspects of our life. Help us to live in the freedom and the joy that comes from having nothing to hide. A life that does what is right in the eyes of your eyes in whatever setting and whatever condition we are part of. Help us to live wisely, to live rightly, so that it can be said of each person here this morning, here is a man, here is a woman, who is a man or woman after my own heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.